Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 13. We'll look at verses 11 through 14 together. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, and that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want you to think back with me to the beginning of chapter 12 of Romans. When the Apostle Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now think with me about that. This is neither a recommendation nor a suggestion. What does Paul say that it is? It is an appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, an impassioned exhortation to worship the Lord with every square inch of our being. It is an appeal, not to the merits of man, but to the mercies of God. It is an appeal, not to lifeless religion, but to living worship. Christian worship, then, is not something that is relegated to one time, one place, one practice, but it engages all of us, all of the time, in every way. Our part in worship, well, it's never in the achieving, is it? But in the receiving and in the responding. We are worshipers only because God sought us in mercy, saved us by His grace, and even in this moment, sustains us in His love. That's why our obedience is self-sacrificing worship, as Paul puts it. We aren't trying to self-sacrificially secure our salvation, but are responding to the mercy and to the grace of God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. It's akin to Jesus' imagery 
of the cross when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The metaphor is striking, isn't it? I mean, think of the question here. Who daily takes up an instrument of shame, torture, and death? Only the born again. Who heed the self-sacrificing appeal. And yet, even then, it is only in the strength that God gives. In light of this, in light of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in light of the worship that includes every square inch of our being, in light of this, Paul says this in the beginning of verse 11. He says, you know the time. Not linear time like hands on a clock, but what the Greeks called kairos, the moment the moment in time. Like, a child, like child labor, the birth of a child, it happens at the moment when the baby is ready to arrive. With that first labor pain, it is as if she says, Mama, now is the time. And likewise, drawing from that imagery, now is the time to wake up to our calling to worship, to cast off the works of darkness, to put on Christ through His means of grace. And so I want us to start today by looking at this first concept of waking up. Now's the time. Wake up, Paul says. Of course, the problem is, is that the way of the world lulls us to sleep like a large meal on Sunday lunch, right? This large Sunday lunch lulls us. The transition from dessert to sleep is minutes long for me. <laughs> Before we know it, we're sound asleep. But unlike Sunday afternoon naps, Spiritual slumber is not a blessing from God. It's not the result of God-given rest, but worldly engagement, worldly entanglement. Deceptive as it is, worldliness breeds spiritual lethargy. Devotion is replaced with worldly desire. Faithfulness gives way to forgetfulness. Like the serpent awaiting lonely Eve... Sin lurks at the boundaries of slumber. How easily we become unconcerned with the things of God. How easily we are deceived with something that we would think we would not be deceived by. That is, until the Holy Spirit, through the Word of Christ, so to speak, draws the blinds. Sounds the alarm. It's like one of those old-fashioned alarm clocks. You know what I'm talking about? Brass with the ringer that shakes when that ringer goes off. Ring, 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 ring. It is, is, it is as if Paul has said, Listen to the alarm. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. But there is also 
In this word, kairos, there's also a future sense of our waking up. Our salvation, Paul says, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It is nearer now than when we first believed. Our Lord's return is closer today than it was yesterday. It's time to prepare ourselves for His arrival and the completion of our salvation unto glory. Of course, the salvation that Paul is referring to here, theologically we refer to that as glorification, the completion of the salvation that began in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But thinking about something as cosmic as the Lord's return, well, sometimes it can be hard to imagine. Sometimes these great truths can be, well, difficult for us to imagine in our minds. So, think about summer cucumbers in my garden. That's pretty easy to think about, right? If I want cucumbers tomorrow, waiting until today to plant the seed... Is not going to work, is it? If I plant a seed today, I won't have cucumbers for about 60 days into the future. But I knew two months ago to plant a seed in my garden so that I would have summer cucumbers. Yet, how many of us live the Christian life and think about Christian maturity like a store-bought cucumber? No planting No cultivating, no watering, no waiting, just, well, of course. (laughs) The intersection of our sanctification and our glorification, it doesn't work like a store-bought cucumber. And so it's time to wake up. It's time to work and keep the garden that God has given us. Paul says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Waking up to the imminence of Christ's return leads not to reading the signs of the time, nor speculating on timing, but it leads to the conviction of the certainty of Christ's return. And how does that translate into our daily lives? Knowing the certainty of Christ's return translates into us living every minute of our existence to the glory of God. As the Apostle John taught this, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Waking up to the reality and the implication of Christ's return leads not to apocalyptic self-protection. You know what it leads to? It leads to self-sacrificing sanctification. Everyone, Paul says, everyone who thus hopes in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. That's telling. And so we are to wake up, Paul says, to this reality. Now is the time, now is the moment for this to grip you. And it must grip us all. 
But the second concept that Paul uses is to cast off. We are to wake up, but we are to cast off. Just as waking up in the morning, just as waking up in the morning involves changing clothes for most of us, except for the few that work at home, right? That are still by three o'clock in the afternoon in the same clothes that they slept in. You don't do that, do you? No, of course not. So for most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we change our clothes. We are to, in that sense, we are to cast off the works of darkness and we are to put on the armor of light. Typically, what we wear is telling. Think about it this way. When you came in today, and if you were visiting, let's say, you came in today and you saw me in the black Genevan gown that I wear every Sunday, you didn't look at me and go, who's the cross-dresser in the black dress? You didn't go, whoa, really inappropriate attire on Sunday morning, I'm thinking. No. What did you know? Well, you, you, you knew who I was, right? Immediately, okay, well, that, that, that's the minister. You also knew just by virtue of the black gown that we worship with a sense of reverence and awe. You would, you would deduce that, well, you know, there's a certain gravity to their worship. And, and they take this very seriously. And all of these, and I could go on and on, of course, but all of these are told just by simply of wearing the black gown. Well, similarly, as children of light, we wear what is congruent with who we are. And works of darkness are not congruent with who we are. We don't wear works of darkness It would be contrary to our true and eternal identity. Think about Paul's use of the metaphor darkness here. In a pre-electricity age, revelry was reserved for the dark of night. There are things that people do in the dark that they would never do in the light. They are not noble works. They are works of sin. Seemingly hidden in darkness and done by those who clothe themselves in the debauchery of their darkened heart. Of course, there's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord. The sage says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And we who are children of the one who said in the beginning, let there be light. Of course, we are children of light. We cast off that darkness, so to speak. As was read today in the passage from Ephesians, so also Paul said to the Thessalonians, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so such works of darkness, continuing with that metaphor, are to be cast off. We are to not entangle ourselves with the ways of the sinful world. But Paul specifically lists three pairs, three pairs of sins here to make sure we don't miss the point. Look at the text with me. Orgies and drunkenness. Sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. Now, 
I know in reading this text out loud, that polite company may wonder how in the world does the Apostle Paul justify saying an unmentionable in the same breath as respectable sins like quarreling. But there's purpose. There's purpose in his categories. The first two continue Paul's metaphor of darkness in contrast to light. Immoral sexual excess and drunkenness are not only descriptions of debauchery, they are also part, or were also part in that age, of the Roman party scene. It was a description, and everyone in that church would have known what Paul was referring to. In reference to the party life of the Romans at night, they would gather with sex parties and drunkenness. That Christians were present at these parties is debatable. That a Christian should never be present at any deeds of darkness is undeniable. And so Paul starts in a certain sense of working his way through to say, this is out there and children of light should never be known by darkness. Similarly, sexual immorality and sensuality are sins of a kind linked in their connection and their temptation as well as their cultural provocation. Think about this with me. These two sins, then and now, are culturally apparent. They become insidiously intertwined with ordinary life, becoming, sadly, less and less offensive in a culture that has societally embraced sexual immorality and sensuality. Pervasive sensuality numbs the collective conscience, like you didn't know that already, right? But sadly... Sexual immorality and sensuality are just the ones to numb the conscience of a Christian. And Christians that allow themselves to be entangled in sensuality and sexual immorality eventually affects their conscience and, and things aren't as concerning and they let go of certain convictions and they become numbed more and more. That's why casting off, the imagery that Paul is using here, casting off these sins starts with calling them like, they, like it is. We have to call these sins in order for us to confront them in our own lives. The last pair of sins Paul gives, well, they seem tame in comparison, don't they? Which should give us pause. Wondering how vile that quarreling and jealousy can be compared to, well, compared to orgies, drunkenness, and sexual immorality tells volumes of how we often disdain the sins of the culture in which we live and yet ignore the very sins that we are susceptible to in the church. It is quite easy to be appalled by the sins of the world while we harbor our own little pet sins within. It is no wonder that such sins slither their way among us. Many a church has hemorrhaged 
from the strife-causing actions of one or few. And as the Apostle James put it, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Think about that. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. I get that. But then he adds, and every vile practice. Quarreling. What quarreling gets dismissed as defending the precision of doctrine. And jealousy. Well, jealousy gets defended as, well, I'm just aspiring to be someone who can help and serve in the church. And we defend our sins even in the church. And eventually, what can happen in a church? It can become a coliseum of chaos. It can become a venue of every vile practice. Lucifer may yawn at the drunken orgies of the darkness, but he is wide awake for the party of jealousy and quarreling in the church. Of course, Paul's pairings are not exhaustive. He's giving us examples ranging from the unthinkable and unmentionable to the respectable. His call to us is not to cast, categorize, but to cast off all sizes, all styles. But casting off is only half of Paul's wardrobe instruction, isn't it? He tells us to cast off the works of the darkness, but he also tells us to put on. To put on the armor of light. In fact, Paul uses this verb translated put on twice in our text. First, he tells us to put on the armor of light, or it could also be translated weapons of light. Now, Paul doesn't specify the weapons here, as he did the sins. Likely, because he means this in a general sense. However, we may infer that such weapons are at our disposal and they are provided by God's gracious appointment. Furthermore, Paul adds that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, revealing that what we put on, the adorning of armor, the wielding of weapons, are not of our own fabrication, but are of Him. And through him and to him that he may get all the glory. So there is the putting on as we understand that we cannot put on anything nor be protected apart from Christ. But I want to pause here for just a second and have you think about this. You, you know where I'm going. You've heard me preach enough to know. Okay, I get it. Wake up. Cast off. Put on. He's now going to tell us what we're to put on. But think for just a moment of the privilege of putting on. Think about the privilege of putting on. Such a charge is not an option for those who remain in their sins and trespasses. They cannot put on the armor of light. They cannot put on the Lord Jesus Christ if they remain dead 
Only those who are alive in Christ through faith in Him can adorn the armor of a new identity. Paul is not merely encouraging us to change our ways. No. You see, I am, I am no more protected from evil, robed in my own sick self-righteousness than the filthy rags of unrighteousness. No, the armor of light is exclusive. And it is only for those who have trusted in the way, the truth, and the light. It is only those of us who have been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and the one who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who arose victoriously conquering both sin and death. That is a privilege that only we as the children of God enjoy. And so, in Christ, we put on the impenetrable, we adorn the unconquerable, wielding the warfare weaponry of the ordinary means of grace. Think about it with me. We go to the Word of God. And we go to the Word of God, we don't go to it as worldly entertainment. As some dusty old book that maybe it would be wise that we read. No, we go to it as the rule of faith. And we go to God's word and we read it. And we pray it. And like we did today, we sing it. And it's preached. Only the dead and defenseless consider this just an ordinary book. We know it as the infallible word of life. And according to the word, we're faithful to be fed at the Lord's table. As we eat the bread, as we drink the wine, we see the emblems of the gospel. Those emblems of the faith that we profess. Those emblems that we examine ourselves and preparing ourselves to take of the Lord's Supper. The emblems of the gospel that we believe and we profess. And in doing so, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we are nourished in the means of grace. And should we go weary? Should we be discouraged? We look back to our baptism where God set us apart as His covenant child, giving us His promises and guaranteeing us the victory. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray. We are a praying people. Think about this. Think about just what you have experienced today. At the beginning of every week. You know that's Sunday, right? The first day of the week. The day our Lord resurrected from the dead. On the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, together in corporate worship, we collectively sing our prayers. I mean, who does that anymore? Who gets together and sings together other than European soccer fans? But we do. We get together and we sing our prayers together. And we pray for one another. And then we pray for our neighbor. And believe it or not, the world probably doesn't believe it. Right here, we pray for the world. And every week, we're reminded that we don't wage war alone. But rather, 
In a sense, we are a battalion of brotherhood waging war on our knees. And from this first day of the week, what happens? Well, from this first of the week, we go into the rest of the week, praying without ceasing. Not because we didn't say everything that needed to be said on Sunday, because we enjoyed the continual fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so we are a praying people through His Word, through the sacraments, through prayer. You see, our Lord is equipping us. He is enabling us to worship Him with every square inch of our being. For our God has not called us to put on anything that He has not already provided and prepared for us. You need not go through that door hoping that you might encounter the armor of light. The weaponry of the Lord out there. You need not scribble down more notes as if maybe I've given you clues that you might find it. No, the Lord has given us every single thing that we need in this moment. And you didn't achieve it. And you can't earn it. But God has given it to us freely. That we might enjoy it. And so let us be up and awake to what God is doing. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger. Waiting until the last minute. Dress yourself in Christ and be up and about. Because now is the time. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you. That the armor that we bear is what you have given us in Christ. We thank you that the wake up call that you have initiated to us in your word is indeed a privilege that we enjoy as your children. Oh God, let us not be a, sl- a slumbering lot, but let us be a people who have heard the alarm that has been called. Let us awake to the imminence of Christ's return. Let us walk faithfully, not as in the night, but as in the day, not in works of darkness, but as children of light, wielding the weaponry that you have given us. May we be a people who are faithful in your word, faithful to your sacraments, faithful in prayer, for you have indeed called us. May we be faithful to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www dot cpcfs dot org.